The Self and Its Sources, Reflections on Virginia Woolf's The Waves, by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 3. So, as the world loses its transcendence, we become ever more prone to the mimetic entanglement, because the object of our ultimate concern is somebody who's in our social environment, some, uh, some model. We, our models are coming out of our social environment. We're modeling our lives on each other and immediately falling into envy and rivalry and resentment and, and uh, contention and so on and so forth. And the old sacrificial system for solving that problem and reintroducing some kind of transcendence has broken down. But we haven't yet taken seriously the gospel's admonition about living our lives in relationship to transcendence. But the day will come, I, I predict the day will come, and I'm trying to hasten it along, in which we will look at this and see it for the first time. We will open the the New Testament and see this thing that says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and the scales will fall from our eyes and we will realize with a gasp why that's called the greatest commandment. So what I want to do now is to turn the question, turn to the question of the novel and, and prepare us for next week when we will finally get to Virginia Woolf's novel. As I said, I think the novel is a chronicle of the collapse of transcendence in the modern world and the rise of internal mediation. And it begins with, as many people have said, the modern novel begins with Don Quixote. And, and what interests us about Don Quixote is not what he does, but what he is. We're interested in Don Quixote as a character. We don't think about Don Quixote as adventures. His adventures are all fantasy. We're interested in him, this curious creature, Don Quixote, who is nothing but the imitation of his model. And we find him interesting. And I want to quote to you to prepare us for our journey into the novel a little bit. Ortega, who's written some things on the novel which are very insightful. And uh, so he says this, Ortega says this, When we are fascinated by a novel, it is not because we are curious to know what happened to Mr. So-and-so. The subject of any novel can be told in a few words and in this form holds no interest. We want the novelist to linger and to grant us good long looks at his personages, their being and their environment till we have had our fill. The interest in the outer mechanisms of the plot is today reduced to a minimum. All the better. The novel must now revolve around the superior interest emanating from the inner mechanism of the personages. And then Ortega talks about the evolution of the novel. At first, the narrative as such kept the reader amused through the novelty of the subject. By the way, I'm going to interrupt myself here, but I think Girard is parse this thing a little better when he talks about the movement from the from romance to novel. Romance is based on the the romance is is the dynamic that drives the romance is mimetic. It's all triangular love affairs and 
and uh, exploits, you know, that involve triangles and, and all kinds of other mimetic dynamics. No question about it. But when you get to the novel, the apparatus, the mimetic apparatus, actually comes into the novel itself. You begin to see, not just the, the romantic writer exploits. When I say romantic writer, I don't mean the 18th century. I mean the, the, the writer of the romance, the chivalrous romances. They exploit the mimetic dynamic, but never reveal it. And Girard says the novel as a novel, the novelistic form, not only uses it, but actually reveals the mechanism. So you begin to see what's going on. And so you get Don Quixote. We don't have suddenly Don Quixote riding off. We have Don Quixote modeling on this fictional character he read about in a book. So it's explicit. So Ortega says, uh, at first the narrative as such kept the reader amused through the novelty of the subject. He was as delighted to listen to the hero's adventures as we are to hear what happened to a person we love. But soon adventures by themselves lose, lose attraction, and what then pleases us is not so much the fortunes of the personages as their self-presence. We enjoy seeing those people before us and being admitted to their inner life, understanding them, and living immersed in their world or atmosphere. But the problem with the novel is that it's running out of subjects. It's running out of subjects at the, at the narrative level because nobody's interested in what happens, only in who it happens to. And it's running out of subjects at the psychological level because the more people that are drawn into the world of internal mediation, the more their own subjectivity is deconstructed so that finally the subjects vanish. There are no more subjects, real subjects, they're just these uh, mimetic configurations that still have a name attached to them, like the underground man. His own real subjectivity has vanished. He's nothing but a, but a, but a uh, hologram of his, of his bitterly resentful relationships. He's dissolved. His subjectivity is gone. So this novel is running out of subjects. The imperative of the novel says Ortega, is autopsy. The novel has run out of subjects because its subject matter has dematerialized. It has dematerialized before the bewildering eyes of the novel's own practitioners. In 1931, when Virginia Woolf published The Waves, a critic commenting on the book said that uh, Virginia Woolf had used interesting experimental techniques to elucidate her characters. And Virginia Woolf then wrote in her in her diaries, the only thing he missed was that there are no characters in that book. Not because it's, a, it's an internal dialogue, but because that's precisely the, the, the burden of that book, that they have lost their subjectivity. How? And that's what makes the book such an interesting read, I think. Anyway, so here's a final from uh, Ortega. He says, when I hear a friend, particularly if he is a young writer, calmly announce that he's working on a novel, I'm appalled. And I feel that in his case, I should be trembling in my boots. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I cannot help scenting behind such an equanimity an alarming dose of incomprehension. In other words, it's like he's going to go play with plutonium-239 or something. <laughs> 
And that's tr- that's exactly it. So he's, uh, then Ortega goes on and says, To produce a good novel has always been a difficult thing, but while before it was enough to have talent, the difficulty has now grown immeasurably, for to be a gifted novelist is no longer a guarantee for producing a good novel. Now, what? how would you explain that? To be a gifted novelist is no longer a guarantee for producing a good novel. I'll tell you how Girard explains it. He says, in order to be a great novelist, you have to really understand the mimetic dynamic. You have to really... It's, you, it's not just a matter of being a good storyteller. You have to really understand what the, the mechanism that, that is driving this human sociodrama. And unless you understand that in the way that Shakespeare did and Cervantes did and Dostoevsky did, uh, you can't really write a novel that will remain great, however good you might be at storytelling. You have to understand that mechanism. So for Girard, great novelists can no longer simply exploit the mimetic dynamic that animates their characters and electrifies the otherwise humdrum people and plots of their novels. They must become ever more explicit about the mimetic dynamic, and they can only do so at the expense of the romantic carrying capacity of their novels. In other words, the novels have to become less romantic in the sense of less and less of a good story because they're revealing some kind of pernicious thing that is, that is animating this fascinating display. That's why when Ortega says the imperative of the novel is autopsy, I think he's, I think he's right. It's, the novel is documenting a slow death. The slow death of the social self, of the merely social self, the self that has no transcendence. So the mimetic crisis, which at the anthropological level at least it is the task of the novelist to document, grows graver. And the selves that flit around the novelistic narrative grow more tenuous and hysterical. When, therefore, Ortega says that he is appalled when a young writer tells him he aspires to be a novelist, he's right. It is like a promising and gifted young physician deciding to spend his career as a coroner For as Ortega notes, the imperative of the novel is autopsy. Both the work of the coroner and the work of the novelist cannot be performed by the squeamish. So, I would like to read to you from a review by uh, Makiko Kakatani, who writes reviews for the New York Times, reviewed a novel by Stephen Wright entitled Going Native. And the burden of that novel is that a man leaves his wife and children in order to wander around the American social landscape in search of himself. The great story, of course. His name is Wiley. And here's what, here's what uh, Kakutani says about him. Like the receding American frontier, the road for Wiley means freedom, independence, and the chance to invent himself anew. It also means rootlessness, dislocation, the loss of family, and self, end quote. So, so Wiley goes around in, in, involved in relationships and non-relationships, all with people who are more or less suffering from his same ailment. And uh, Kakatani sums it up with these words. I'm reading this as a 
a very recent example of a novel. Remember, Ortega says, when a young friend tells me he wants to be a novelist, I'm appalled. And that's because I think the novelist is doing this autopsy. And who would want to do that? So here's an autopsy. And this is secondhand because this is the reviewer. None of these people have the slightest grip on who they are or what they truly believe. In fact, all of them seem caught in a perpetual state of metamorphosis, shedding old lives and shrugging on new ones with the ease of an actor changing costumes for a scene. A nurse becomes a drug addict. A Vegas entrepreneur becomes a preacher. A teenage girl becomes a worshiper of Satan. Uh, Wiley, Mr. Wright suggests, is perhaps the most extreme example of this protean personality. During his cross-country drive, he assumes and discards a host of aliases and identities, erasing his past and his responsibility for his actions as he goes. Change your name, he thinks, and you can change your reality. Using quick impressionistic prose, Mr. Wright narrates Wiley's adventures and their violent, shattering consequences with cool aplomb as he plunges the reader into a nightmare world of sleazy motels, low-rent casinos, mind-altering drugs, orgies, and murder. That's the autopsy. That's the coroner's report that the novelist is obliged by the nature of his art to issue. And it always has to be updated because it's a progressive thing. But I think we could say that fundamentally the outcome of the autopsy is already there in Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground and Virginia Woolf's The Waves. And uh, a few of the little details may still have to be issued by later novelists, but by and large I think we have the picture before us. But again, it's not for the squeamish. You know, he says, uh, Mr. Wright narrates all this with cool aplomb, and we, we appreciate his, his, uh, his ability to, uh, to look at such things with that detachment. The novelistic art is not for the squeamish because the novelistic fiction and the historical and existential facts uh, are becoming uh, almost indistinguishable. So I'm going to go to another example of that. Last fall, I quoted a review by Morris Dickstein of a book by Anatoly Broyard entitled Kafka Was the Rage. Broyard was a, was a figure in the Greenwich Village literary scene in the 1940s, and he writes a, a, a reminiscence about this. And central to his book is his, is his uh, uh, extended romance with a young artist named uh, Sherry Donati. And in the Dickstein article which I quoted last fall, uh, I quoted the following. I'll quote it again and then go to another review of the same book. Dickstein said, Most of the memoir explores Broyard's relationship with Sherry Donati, an abstract artist and protege of Anna East Nin, who embodied for him at 26 the alluring perils of uninhibited sex and unconventional art. And about their steamy affair, Broyard says, we were like lovers in a sad futuristic novel where sex is subject to a revolutionary program. That's, boy. And Broyard says, um, most people, so there's so much for this, the, the, the hope of uninhibited sex. Uh, Broyard says, most people would say that lovemaking is a defense against loneliness. 
and I remember, I thought I didn't wasn't so sure most people would say that, but anyway, Broyard is says most people would say that. Most people would say that lovemaking is a defense against loneliness, but with Sherry, it was an investigation of loneliness, a safari into its further reaches. Again, now this is not a novel, but this is performing some of the novelistic uh, autopsy. And then, and in this. In, in his book, Broyard leaves Sherry Donati after she tries to kill herself by turning on the gas. Okay, in a later review that appeared in the Washington Times book uh, supplement by Joyce Johnson, there's a longer excerpt from the novel. As you know, I haven't read this novel. I just read the reviews of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have, I don't, I don't quite have the uh, uh, the coroner's uh, <laughs> stomach for thing. Anyway, so but but I appreciate the reviews anyway, and so there's a longer quote from Broyard in this later review, uh, and here's what he says: Sherry was her own avant-garde. I we could spend we should just sit down and a- analyze the word avant-garde. Be, I don't want to do it today, but you know the idea avant-garde means you must be ahead of the crowd, which means you know somehow that the crowd's going to be following somebody, and you don't want to be a follower; you want to be the one followed. Right? You don't want to be the. You don't want to be an imitator. You want to be a model. So if you if you act hysterically enough, outrageously enough, flamboyantly enough, you, it'll follow. You'll follow anything. It's it's the the mimetic thing is so crazy. It doesn't matter. So all you have to do is do something flamboyantly enough, and you can be avant-garde. But the underlying mechanism is flamboyance, and so you have to be more flamboyant than the last flamboyance. And pretty soon you get into madness. See? And Sherry Donati, he says, was her own avant-garde. Now that's a recipe for it. And then he says, she had erased and redrawn herself, redesigned the way she walked, moved, even the way she thought and felt. She was a forerunner or harbinger. She was a forerunner or harbinger, like the shattering of the object in cubism or atonality in music. When I came to know her better, I thought of her as a new disease. (laughs) When I came to know her better, I thought of her as a new disease. It wasn't that new because the first words that the that the underground man speaks in Notes from Underground, he says, I'm a sick man. I am a, I'm a spiteful man. And his disease, he's, he's got a bad liver, but the, the sickness that Dostoevsky's talking about is precisely this sickness. And what, what, uh, what Broyard is talking about when he says, I thought of her as a new disease, uh, he's, what he has in mind, no doubt, is the contagiousness of the disease. It is contagious. Because if, for example, you see somebody being avant-garde, you think, hey. <laughs> you see what I mean? So, Charles Taylor, who's written a major study on the self, again, which I've only begun to read, but from another article he wrote in, in, no doubt, in preparing to write that book, 
He says, the search for the self in order to come to terms with oneself has become one of the fundamental themes of modern culture. He says, there is a question about ourselves which we roughly gesture at with the term identity that cannot be sufficiently answered with any general doctrine of human nature. And he says we can't, it cannot be answered with any general doctrine of human nature. I think that's both true and false. I think it's true. I think it's false because I think there is a doctrine of human nature that can get to the heart of this. And I think Girard has begun work on it and thematized it as mimetic desire. I think it's the cultural and social psychological DNA. And so I think there is a general doctrine that we can use for understanding the, the, the human dilemma in all of its registers. For example, for understanding Sherry Donati and for understanding Paul. For understanding Jesus saying, I only do what the Father bids me do. Or understanding Sherry Donati trying to be avant-garde. I think the, the beauty of what uh, Girard has accomplished is he's now made it possible for us to, to see this human dilemma in all of its registers. And I hope made it possible for us to understand why the greatest commandment is in fact the greatest commandment. I think Taylor's right because the identity of the subject always depends upon the identity of the model with whom the subject is identified. Identity itself is an act of identification. And that's why the word identity is so interesting because it means both the same and different. It's, it's what happens in the New Testament when Jesus says, I only do, I'm obedient to the Father. And then... I and the Father are one. You see. There's a, there's a mystery about identity that goes to the heart of personality itself. Paul Tillich, are you ready for this? This is very important what I'm about to say. <laughs> Paul Tillich said, personality is not possible without faith. Gerard says, the only true self is the converted self. By which he means a self who has uh, undertaken to fulfill the greatest commandment. Tillich says personality is not possible without faith, but there is, of course, idolatrous faith. Personality is not possible without faith, but idolatrous faith leads to a decentering of the personality. And that's precisely what the novel is documenting. So I would. I would conclude with the thing I always return to because I think it's such a marvelous modern summation of, of the greatest commandment. The, the existentialist philosopher Gabriel Marcel uh, speaks of the necessity to subordinate the self to a superior reality, a reality, he says, at my deepest level more truly me than I am myself. And Marcel says... This subordination not only leads to my discovery of real selfhood, but it also fosters community because it abolishes the tension between the self and other. 
We have failed to abolish the tension between self and other, and the mechanisms for doing so sacrificially have been destroyed by the gospel revelation. And yet we have failed to appreciate the anthropological significance of the gospel's insistence that we discover a non-sacrificial form of transcendence. We have failed to understand the meaning of the gospel's admonition to love God with all one's heart, mind, and soul. To the extent that this is so, we live increasingly in a world like the one Dostoevsky describes in Notes from Underground and which Virginia Woolf depicts in The Waves. And so I was thinking that the function of the incarnation is to provide us with a living human example of a life lived by one who loved God with his whole heart, his whole mind, and his whole soul. And that the function of liturgy, sacraments, and scriptural readings is to bring about an identification with that life because identity brings about gradually a mimetic effect. Let me begin by going back to something the, the existentialist philosopher Gabriel Marcel said, and I've quoted many, many times, and that is that the discovery of the true self awaits an act of subordination Marcel says, quote, the subordination of the self to a superior reality, a reality at my deepest level more truly me than I am myself. I go back to that in part, but partly because it's the touchstone of everything we're doing and partly because the same Gabriel Marcel wrote a little introduction to a, a uh, book that is uh, that pretty much has languished by uh, Max Picard Picard was a Swiss philosopher and he wrote a couple of interesting meditations on the, uh, the crisis in our time and one of them is called The Flight from God. And Marcel wrote, Marcel who met Picard and was uh, immensely influenced by him as a person wrote the little introduction to this book and he says this in there. Picard's metaphysics of flight, in other words, Picard analyzes the modern problem using his own metaphor, the metaphor of flight, but in many ways the way I've tried to analyze it in the last couple of weeks, namely the loss of transcendence. So uh, Marcel says, Picard's metaphysics of flight is of exceptional interest in that it gives us a glimpse of the hidden and formidable meaning of a phenomenon of which sociology can give only a superficial interpretation. In other words, everybody else is trying to come to grips with this cultural uh, situation from the social sciences, or many are. And Marcel is saying that Picard approached the problem religiously and got to its essence. And then he goes on, Picard is amongst the few who can resist the universal vertigo and who appear capable of redirecting the remnants of the thinking elite. Without such a redirection, it is impossible not to despair of mankind. So Picard, what makes him helpful is that he has avoided the vertigo, therefore he can see what's actually happening. That is to say, he hasn't fallen into it. He's out of it enough to see what's actually happened. Uh, and therefore he can instruct, as Marcel says, the remnants of the intellectual elite. They're in no mood to be 
instructed, particularly by somebody with a with a uh, religious commitment. But in any case, without such a redirection, it is impossible not to despair of mankind. So he was able to avoid the vertigo. So all the ideas are here in this those few sentences by Marcel, uh, namely that that there is a flight away from or a rejection of transcendence and that and that those who pay attention to that as the key feature of the modern confusion are more likely to get past the superficial interpretations uh, to what uh, Marcel calls the hidden and formidable meaning of the phenomenon. And that Picard was able to do that in part because he was able to resist the vertigo of the situation. Well, based on such a strong recommendation, one must go to Picard himself, and I have, I just want to quote a little passage from that book uh, and then go on. Picard notices about the modern world that the first person pronoun is way overused. (laughs) And he ponders this. Why are we overusing the first person pronoun? And he says, clearly, we're using it, we use it the more, the more the thing it refers to grows weaker and less less, uh, defined. So we use it as a way to shore up the thing that the word's supposed to refer to. We use it hysterically in a way to try to continue to vivify or reify this thing that that pronoun's supposed to refer to, which seems to be dissolving in our midst. So we're constantly using first-person pronouns and other forms of self-reference as a way of trying to distinguish ourselves in a world in which it's increasingly difficult to do so. So Picard says, in the flight, namely the flight from God, in the flight, the distinction between one person and another is effaced. And consequently, everything one meets in the flight he seizes and uses as a means of making himself distinct, that he may be seen by himself and others. In other words, the problem of distinctness becomes problematic. The problem of identity becomes problematic. And Picard says, in this shapeless world of the flight, everything is exaggerated and falsified in order to be rendered distinct. For only that which is extreme produces a clear outline. So there's a tendency to exaggerate distinctions and so on. This is, this is I think, lies at the heart of, uh, of hysteria. He, and he goes on. The poor must appear poorer. Not that this is what they want, but that for many, poverty alone can give distinctness. The rich must appear richer, for they have nothing but riches. Many try to be more evil than they are by nature. They try to magnify their evil. The evil is like a signboard which a man hangs out to inform himself and others that this is where he lives. Many become better than they have it in their own nature to be. They overdo kindness. They drive themselves into it, into an excess of kindness, simply for the purpose of gaining clarity of outline through this exaggeration and of perceiving their own existence. Kindness for them is not an end in itself, but merely a means of tracing a form. So that's a pretty sweeping observation, you see. It could be good or bad, but underneath it all, what's going on is the attempt to uh, uh, to uh, 
define and promote some kind of distinct identity. And that's only going on at that uh, extreme level because it's becoming increasingly difficult to do. So, as Simon Weiss says, wherever the virtue of supernatural light is absent, everything is obedient to mechanical laws as blind and as exact as the laws of gravitation. Now, I just want to call your attention to the, to the parallel here. What uh, Marcel says about Picard is that he was able to, to glimpse the hidden and formidable meaning of this otherwise vertiginous phenomenon that's going on. He saw, the, he saw if you will, the process, the mechanisms that were at work uh, in all this confusion. And Simone Weil refers also to, this, to, this, to these mechanical laws. Certain things start to happen in the absence of transcendence. It becomes mechanical. Uh, and it's interesting to me that Girard has chosen to use the word mechanism uh, when he tries to describe the, some, of the, some of the most uh, prominent and, and uh, significant mimetic dynamics because they function like a mechanism. They are triggered and set in motion and then they, they, they follow predictable patterns. Well, Simone Weil in that passage, as, as you know from the times I've quoted it in the past, she, there's an explicit scapegoat reference uh, in her idea of gravitation. She says, for example, if a hen is hurt, the others rush upon it, attacking it with their beaks. This phenomenon is as automatic as gravitation. So there you have her idea of gravitation and Girard's idea of the mechanism very close together. And in fact, the final scapegoating stages of the gravitational process are more easily perceived and conceptualized than are its incipient stages. But at its later stages, the opportunities for diffusing its contagious passions are very slight. So we can recognize its mechanisms when it gets into the area of scapegoating. But it's, it's more difficult to recognize the mechanistic aspects of the early stages of, this, of the onset of this uh, crisis, what Gerard calls the crisis of distinctions. Uh, and it, it is the crisis, I think, at a psychological level that's, that Virginia Woolf is investigating in this, in this novel that we're about to turn to. Okay, for trying to understand the early stages of this crisis, there were other people besides Max Picard, and even before Max Picard, who saw this same process from another point of view. Some with some religious perspective, some from a more uh, social science perspective, and some from a literary perspective. For example, uh, Max Scheler wrote a book entitled Resentiment, in which he tried to investigate this term, which was so central to the thinking of Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and uh, Dostoevsky. Among the sources of resentment, Scheler underscores the following, quote, envy, jealousy, and rivalry. Stendhal, the novelist Stendhal, spoke of, quote, envy, jealousy, and impotent hatred, end quote, as the, quote, modern emotions, end quote. And Kierkegaard, as you know, because this is another one of the things I quote every week, says resentment is the constituent principle of the modern age, and it consists of 
moving from the happy love of admiration to the unhappy love of envy. And finally, Girard uh, has pointed, has thematized all of this and pointed out that these emotions, envy, jealousy, rivalry, impotent hatred, etc., resentment, that these emotions are modern, as Stendhal says, because we're undergoing a, gra- not because we're different from people before us or we're particularly mean and resentful, but because we're undergoing the gradual collapse of the social structures that prevent the arousal of such emotions and the demise of the conventional cultural mechanisms for periodically draining them off towards scapegoats. So these emotions recognized by Kierkegaard, Stendhal, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, and Girard are specifically modern emotions, and they're symptomatic of, number one, the demise of the system of sacred transcendence upon which culture as we know it has always been based, and two, at the level of cultural sciences, that's a symptom of our failure to comprehend and come to grips with what's happening to us, and three, at, at the religious level, it's a symptom of our failure to appreciate the role of the biblical tradition in bringing about this enormous historical event and our reluctance to recognize how anthropologically pertinent the gospel revelation can be to our efforts to extricate ourselves from this crisis. Girard discovered this process by reading novels and he found the modern novel to be the most thoroughgoing exposition of the psychological, social, and religious dynamics that were animating the process. So we're going to turn to one such novel, namely Virginia Woolf's The Waves, and we're going to find, as some of you may have already found if you've read it, that it's a very strange book. (laughs) And so I want to say that we are not reading it for its for for literary pleasure although one could stop and wonder what exactly literary pre- pleasure is but in any event we're not reading it to uh, to be entertained uh, but we're reading it in order to uh, discover something that it lays bare in a very powerful way so the fact that it doesn't entertain us or satisfy us the way we'd like a novel to do shouldn't stand in our way. The, the metaphor that I would like to use for this is the metaphor of infrared photography. You know, when you uh, use infrared photography, for example, uh, if you, maybe you've seen these photographs, you photograph a, photograph a house in winter, you know, and infrared photography will tell you where the heat's leaking out and so on and so forth, and it's extremely useful uh, technology. But it doesn't produce lovely pictures. It produces these garish, <laughs> gaudy-looking things. Uh, and that's the kind of novel this is. It looks weird and strange, but it shows us, I think it reveals to us, where the energy is leaking in a really profound, profound way. And I would argue, and I probably, I have not, I've read virtually none of the criticism of this novel. I shouldn't admit that in public, but it's true. But uh, so, but I, I so I can't say for sure. But I would seriously doubt that anybody else would argue what I would like to argue, namely, 
that one can see that the energy that is leaking out of the system, to use that metaphor, is religious energy. And so that even in a novel written by someone who has uh, avowedly no religious interest in things, one can see the religious dynamic of the energy that's motivating the sociodrama in this novel. So if it gets weird and convoluted, just remember the infrared metaphor. And, and uh, I think we can use this novel to discover some very interesting things about ourselves as well as about our time. I should do a very brief thing about Virginia Woolf before we get into the novel. Her father was a renowned literary figure, literary critic, biographer. Her mother died when she was 13. Her father died when she was 22. A year after her father's death, she had her first uh, in a series of a few serious uh, mental uh, bouts with mental illness. The mental illness returned during World War I. She and her sister Vanessa took up residence uh, in the Bloomsbury district of London, where their home eventually became the center for a very important kind of gathering of uh, literary and artistic figures. They held these soirees, which uh, very soon became famous. So uh, they, this group is now referred to as the Bloomsbury Group. And uh, important figures in the arts uh, came together there. Uh, among them, uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, E.M. Forrester, John Maynard Keynes, and so on and so forth. She married uh, Leonard Wolfe in 1912. He was a journalist and a political essayist. They founded Hogarth Press, which published all of her novels, the early works of T.S. Eliot, E.M. Forrester, and Freud. When she published The Waves in 1931, some critics hailed it as the end of the novel. And I've, I've uh, already talked about that. Last fall, there was an article in the New York Times, a review of an exhibit at the New York Public Library, which was about the Bloomsbury Group, letters and artifacts and so on, photographs. And the Times reviewer uh, talks about the group and so on, obviously. And uh, he says, these figures, Rupert Brooke and... and uh, John Maynard Keynes and Ian Forrester and so on, T.S. Eliot, became, quote, an influential avant-garde in the revolt against artistic, social, sexual restrictions of Victorian society. And then he goes on to say, Wolfe once remarked that the Bloomsbury group was, quote, like nothing so much as a lion's den at the zoo. The animals, she said, were, quote, dangerous and suspicious but also full of fascination and mystery. They were famous for being famous, for their homosexual and lesbian relationships, for their feuds and cattiness, for their self-adulation, and undeniably for their talent in the arts. So she knows whereof she speaks, I would say. It's obvious that the characters in The Waves are drawn upon the characters in the Bloomsbury Group. Now, I don't know if any strict correlation has been, has been worked out. The one that I'm absolutely sure of because it's so unbelievably resonant throughout the work 
is Lewis in this in this novel is T.S. Eliot. Now I shouldn't say that Lewis is not T.S. Eliot, but the character Lewis is modeled on T.S. Eliot. The insight into the social and psychological drama of the modern world that this novel revealed is based on the experience, largely, that that Virginia Woolf had while she was at the center of this circle called the Bloomsbury Group. Again, I'm going to go back and pick up a stitch. So we'll have it all sort of in our minds fresh when we start the novel. I'm going back to Kakatani's review of Stephen Wright's Going Native for a second, in which Kakatani says, quote, None of the people in this novel have the slightest grip on who they are or what they truly believe. In fact, all of them seem caught in a perpetual state of metamorphosis, shedding old selves and shrugging on new ones with an ease of an actor changing costumes for a scene. This is a late stage in the process that Gerard calls ontological sickness. Of course, when one is caught up in it, the evidence of its, of its sham and emptiness rapidly accumulate and the disappointments always set in and the only way to avoid the real recognition of the emptiness of a life of desire not using desire in a Freudian sense but in the Girardian sense the only way to avoid the recognition of an emptiness of a life of desire Girard says is quote by raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power (laughs) and I want to that's another one we have to keep in mind because throughout this novel and the other things we're going to do later, we can see this little moment where there's a little slippage and one can feel that the character is raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power because he's so close to a realization of the shaminess and emptiness of the whole thing. And the alternative to raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power is conversion. Now, I don't mean that strictly in a, in a Christian sense, but conversion in, in a sense of that thing which starts with contrition, that thing which starts with saying, you know, look at what I have done. Look at what I have wrought. Look at what, how false this whole thing is. So, one more bringing back last week's material again, and that is from the... Uh, Washington Post review of uh, Anatoly Broyard's Kafka Was the Rage, in which the, his, his lover from the 1940s, Sherry Donati, plays a major part. And he says, I quoted this last week, but it's, I think, needs to be quoted right here. Sherry was her name, Sherry Donati. Sherry was her own avant-garde. She had erased and redrawn herself, redesigned the way she walked, moved, even the way she thought and felt. She was a forerunner and a harbinger. Like the shattering of the object in cubism and atonality in music, when I came to know her better, I thought of her as a new disease. She was a forerunner and a harbinger. She was, I would say, a forerunner and harbinger because she had raised the coefficient of illusion to the next power. Okay. Very Before we actually get to the text, I hope you will allow me just to read to you some text. It's very embarrassing, really, just to read to you know, adults who are perfectly capable of reading themselves. But these things have to be said out loud, and, and, then, we'll, and then I'll try to kind of 
jiggle them a little bit to, to get them to speak to us. But there'll be a lot this morning where I'll just read to you. But before I do that, let me say something about the novel and the characters or, or non-characters that are in it. First of all, the novel is called The Waves. Virginia Woolf had in mind to name this novel The Moths, you know, the night-flying insects. And clearly, she, she had that name throughout much of the writing of the novel because you can still read in the novel the, the moth metaphor comes in very importantly in the novel. And, and I think it was only later that she decided to change it to the waves. And we'll see echoes of both the moth idea and the wave idea throughout the book. But I think that finally, I don't know what was in her head when she decided to change it, but I think the change is justified for the following reason. Moth is a very good metaphor for what's going on here because the moth, the central thing about a, the metaphor of the moth is the flame. And the moth comes to the flame, comes to the... and, try, and is, tries to get close enough to get its light but not so close that it gets consumed in its, in its fire. By the way, the moth idea is and I don't want to get into this right now, but it's a very good metaphor for understanding the sacred because the sacred always requires some kind of proximity but not too close. And so the moth to the flame really has, has an interesting uh, ramification there with the primitive sacred is what I'm talking about. But it's also, it would also have been appropriate to what Virginia Woolf was studying except that the moth metaphor has a center. And this novel does not have a center. There is an, a kind of glimmering, a kind of chimerical center in this novel, and that is the figure Percival. But it's a chimera, because uh, first of all, he's too—he's—he's he's kind of a—he's kind of a uh, dull, dim-witted sort of figure, and then he dies early on, and so he's there, kind of as a vague afterglow. So this, this novel doesn't have a center, and the, the moth idea does, so all the better for the wave idea. Now, for Virginia Woolf, the waves, as we'll see from some quotations I'll share with you, the wave has to do with the wave hitting the shore, and what interests her about the wave is that one follows another, that they chase each other, and then they dissolve on the sand and, and are sucked back out, and then they chase each other in. And the idea of one coming after another, chasing each other, pursuing one another, is very important to her idea of the waves. That the wave rises up out of some, out of some vast sea of undifferentiation and then just chases the wave in front of it until they crash on the beach. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very uh, in a way, depressing image. But there's also another image of the wave that comes... And I, it's hard to know whether or not she meant the double meaning. But you get a couple of instances in this novel where people are waving to each other. And one senses in the waves that what, what we're getting is a, kind of, uh, is a kind of wan, empty gesture of communication that's not working. So that one wave, it's as though the wave of the hand in this novel is, is like a symbol 
for this universal cultural diaspora that everybody has been thrown into. Okay. There are six speaking characters and nine segments. The segments are chronological. These characters meet as tiny children and go through life together, uh, together or apart. But it's a story. It's a to the extent that there's a story, it's just a chronological story, and it doesn't. It's not a focus at all. Uh, so the nine segments are this progress through the chronological sequence, and there are six characters who speak. They always speak. It says Neville said so and so in quotation marks, but there's no dis- no. Nothing to indicate whether Neville said that to himself or to others or if he, to somebody else to whom. Very rarely is there any reference to somebody speaking to another person. So all we have are these monologues. Uh, but they're not, they're, not, um, they're not your conventional internal monologue. An ordinary novelist, conventional novelistic tool of internal monologue is used to differentiate the character. So that you see, well, the character does this and that and this and that and says this and that, and then you get an internal monologue. The character thinks this. And then you can, two things, you can notice if there's a discrepancy between what's outside and what's inside. Therefore, you can make a moral judgment about hypocrisy or whatever. But also, you can, once you get what they thought, then you really know who they are. Then you really know the essence in an ordinary novel. But in this novel, it's exactly the opposite. The more you know about the character's internal life, the more you realize that they're that that the less differentiated they are, the more you realize that they are simply uh, configured by their relationship to all these other f- figures. So the in- Virginia Woolf uses the tool other novelists use to differentiate their characters. She uses it to undifferentiate them. So the characters are ben- and I'll just do, get, so we'll know the scorecard. Bernard is a maker of. Uh, phrases. He's a novelist. I think he's Virginia Woolf in the story. He's the man who's always telling stories and is always jotting down phrases, and is, uh, is always frustrated because his stories fall apart. And uh, and so he has. And he's incredibly mimetic. He fall. He takes a book off the shelf. He reads it, and he becomes that character instantly. So he's incredibly mimetic that way. Neville is a poet and a scholar. And he mimics the great ones. He learns how to write poetry like Dryden and Shakespeare. Uh, so he's a, and, and he's also a homosexual, homosexual who's in love with Percival. I'll tell you about Percival in a second. Susan is the earth woman, nature-loving woman. She's a mother. She, midlife, she marries uh, and lives on a farm. Uh, she loves, she's loved by Percival and she loves Bernard. Lewis is the is the T.S. Eliot figure. He's the one that I'm really interested in, just because I'm interested in Eliot. And it's almost explicit that he's an Eliot figure. He's the son of a Brisbane banker, a failed banker, and he's very uh, ashamed by that. And he's also um, uh, he also speaks with an Australian accent, and he's con- con- uh, incredibly self-conscious about speaking with an Australian accent. Of course, that would have been that would have been T.S. Eliot in England speaking with an American accent. Who Elliot, by the way, worked in the bank during these years when he was writing these, these early works. So he's the Elliot figure. He's brilliant and aloof, and uh, he fears all the rest of them, uh, except for Rhoda, whom he trusts. And Rhoda is the sort of simple uh, 
clumsy misfit among the female characters. And he has a love affair with Rhoda later. So Rhoda is the clumsy misfit. She's the other two women, Susan and Jenny, tolerate her barely. Uh, and she ends up a suicide uh, in midlife. Jenny is the sensualist, the cultivator of bodily impressions. Jenny is constantly aware of the effect of her body on all observers. And so she's she constantly making efforts to accentuate the power of that emanation. Um, and then finally there's Percival. Percival is the only one who doesn't speak and he's the one that they all watch. He's the, he's the natural man, quote-unquote. He's the what Paul would have called the old Anthropos. There's nothing special about Percival. His name indicates that he's the keeper of the grail. He's the innocent keeper of the grail in a way. He is for all these people because he is so simple-minded and so sort of uh, unilateral in his, in his will that he doesn't get caught up in the mimetic games. Now, this is not because of any virtue on his part. It's because of simple-mindedness. But it's, such, it's so powerful for all these other people who are caught up in the games all the time that they're completely fascinated by this guy. We don't know anything about inside Percival. We don't get his words. We only get observations of him. But he seems to be directed towards just what's in front of him. He's a sportsman. He's a jock, really, you see. Um, and a soldier. And he's the only one in this novel that's sure of himself. Not because he's accomplished anything, really, but because he's simple-minded. And he becomes the center of everybody else's fascination because he's not caught up in the crazy business that they're all caught up in. All these figures begin as little tiny children in, in what appears to be a nursery and then a grammar school and then boarding school and then on into life and then to old age. And the nine, the nine sections refer to this chronological transition. And introducing each of the sections is this little italicized passage at the beginning of each section which talks about the sun rising and setting. So at... We're the, so the course of life is going on for these six characters and the course of the sun across the sky is going on across the arch of the novel. So we're, we're told what part of the day it is, what's happening right now. And it begins with the sun not quite up yet. And I just want to refer to these first lines because I think they help set the tone for what happens in the first section. The sun had not yet risen. The sea was indistinguishable from the sky, except that the sea was slightly creased as if cloth had wrinkles in it. Now, first of all, the sun is not up, the sea and the sky are indistinguishable. So that is mythological language. Myths speak this way all the time. Before creation, all was chaos. The earth and the sky, the sea and the sky, the waters and the land were, were undifferentiated. So this is the same thing we have here. Except that the sea was slightly creased as if a cloth had wrinkles in it. And so you get the first hint of waves on this vast sea of undifferentiation. 
Gradually, the sky whitened a dark line on the horizon dividing the sea and sky, and the gray cloth became barred with thick strokes moving one after another beneath the surface, following each other, pursuing each other perpetually. So again, there's the waves image right there. We begin to see as the divisions happen, we now notice this, these little identities that swell up out of, the, out of the undifferentiated mass and then begin to follow each other. And then she says, the wave paused and then drew out again, sighing like a sleeper whose breath comes and goes unconsciously. The light struck upon the trees in the garden. So now you have dawn. And then the metaphor changes. At dawn, we're in a garden. And so we move from a kind of Mesopotamian field of thought, namely the undifferentiated chaos, into a biblical field of thought, the garden. The light comes up and it strikes the trees in the garden, making one leaf transparent and then another. And I think this is very important to the novel. This idea that the light hits these leaves, and of course the leaves are the characters in the novel. They are also the pages on the book. This is the, tr- this is the, rendering, of, this is the rendering of the novel transparent. It's the, it's the stripping away of everything except the mechanism that has driven the novelistic uh, endeavor. It's rendering the leaves transparent and the characters transparent. And then everything is in this fir- these first few sentences. And the whole mimetic thing is in this next sentence. Then one bird chirped high up. There was a pause. Another bird chirped lower down. So that's the beginning of the world. The division has taken place and the light is going to come in, the, 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 the novelist light, as well as the light of creation, is going to come in and render all of this transparent. And the, and, and it's, and the, what does the transparency consist of? The next sentence. The transparency consists of the mimetic. Now, don't, uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Virginia Woolf is trying to draw out some social science commentary on mimetic dynamic. But simply in the way the structure of this, this introduction is, you can, you can see already what this novel is going to be able to do. The bird chirped high up. There was a pause. Another bird chirped lower down. There you have it. Each figure looks at the rising sun, each, and they're children now, tiny children, and they all sort of have a vision of what it means. And each person, person's vision is, is uh, different and more or less in keeping with their basic, the kind of basic character they have which they will lose in the course of the novel. I, that's, that's not entirely true. They, they all, they, to some extent, they remain recognizable. Susan remains Susan, and, and Neville remains Neville. But at another level, 
the differences are erased because they have used each other for their modeling and rivaling so long that they become indistinguishable. And that's precisely the problem that Max Picard was talking about. Okay, so the dawn of the world and the setting is a garden. So let's stick with the biblical thought pattern for a second. It seems that Virginia Woolf understood that all you need to set this whole scene in motion, all you need to set the human sociodrama in motion is some kind of desire which others could then react to and and be have a like desire awakened in them when they see it and so on and so forth. But you need some kind of active desire to set the thing in motion. But after that, you need nothing. Then it's it, it just goes on its own. It just ripples all the way through the rest of the novel. But you need some little grain of desire, like the serpent in the garden. We're going to come back, you know, to the Genesis, but the serpent says, well, how about that? the fruit of the tree <laughs> and the whole thing you know starts right there well something like that has to happen in this novel as well and it happens when the children are out playing and Lewis who's who's a little afraid of all the rest of them and kind of wants to go be by himself he goes over into the bushes and watches their feet going by and he's there by himself and Jenny comes dashing by, really careening around. I mean, Jenny is just careening around, trying to find something to motivate her. And she stumbles upon Lewis there, and she kisses him. And the novel is set in motion. So there is a kind of Adam and Eve scene in this story, and I, I I don't think I'm stretching it too much to invoke that. It's not anything like the biblical one, but there's an Adam and Eve quality to it that I want to bring out. Here's what Jenny says. I ran past Susan, past Rhoda and Neville and Bernard in the tool house talking. I cried as I ran faster and faster. What moved the leaves? What moves my heart, my legs? Remember, she says in the introduction she's going to make these leaves transparent. What moves the leaves? This is a question of motivation. What moves the leaves? What moves my heart? What moves my leg? What's the motive force? What's the driving dynamic? And I dashed in here seeing you. Now, she's not really talking to Lewis, but she's kind of talking. I mean, there's there's a way in which she's talking to Lewis. I dashed in here seeing you green as a bush like a branch, very still, Lewis, with your eyes fixed. Is he dead, I thought, and kissed you. And Lewis said, I am struck on the nape of the neck. She has kissed me. All is shattered. So this kiss, which is... uh, which is as close to being... It may, this kiss may be the only thing in this novel that you could at least argue is spontaneous. And it sets the whole novel in motion. Everything moves from that one kiss. And of course, Lewis being Lewis, being T.S. Eliot, 
being the double-breasted, uh, you know, pinstriped, wonderful guy. That I'm salute Elliot. Believe me, he is simply trying to keep things order. <laughs> He's trying to keep it from falling, <laughs> and he gets kissed. Okay, now the fall is not the kiss. The fall is not the kiss. This is not some kind of. Uh, the fall comes from elsewhere. Susan. Through the chink in the hedge, said Susan, I saw her kiss him. I raised my head from my flower pot and looked through the chink in the hedge. I saw her kiss him. I saw them, Jenny and Louis, kissing. Now I will wrap my agony inside my pocket handkerchief. I will take my anguish and lay it upon the roots under the beech trees. So this fall begins really with Susan seeing the kiss. And then Susan announces to us that she has fallen. She says, I love and I hate. I desire one thing only. Though my mother still knits white socks for me and hymns pinafores, and I am still a child, already I love and hate. Now, why does she love and hate? When we imitate the desires of those who share the social environment with us, who are close to us, we get into what Gerard called uh, internal mediation. And the closer the proximity of the model and the, and the imitator, the more rivalistic the relationship tends to become. And so Girard says this about internal mediation. The subject is torn between two opposite feelings toward his model, the most submissive reverence and the most intense malice. This is the passion we call hatred. Only someone who prevents us from satisfying a desire which he himself has inspired in us is truly the object of hatred. Now, that's a pretty interesting definition of hatred. Only someone who prevents us from satisfying a desire which he himself has inspired in us is truly an object of hatred. 